Hi, Mark. How's it going? Um, I thought we could start off by talking about your approach to recording, by going through how you record each different instrument and kind of your tastes related to that. Maybe if we start with the drums, are you going lots of microphones, a few microphones? Well, well, it depends on the type of music you're going for. Um, I was taught at an early age back at CRC in Chicago by a bunch of jingle guys that used a lot of mics. And then when I started falling in love with some of the older records, I started finding out that the fewer the mics, the better. And then when I started working for Bill Schnee, I found that like overheads in general were the magic in everything. And being a guy that has loved snare drums my entire life, and it started with rumors, obviously, that's a big one for a lot of people, that it took a while for me to understand what compression was doing to drums and what um, the room was reacting to drums and finding out, you know, a lot of it was players feel more than anything and then after a while you you came up with an idea of you could really get away if you had the great drummer and the right set of mics two or three mics and anything you could really get away with anything and this is even before you start out you know adding samples or anything if you needed to and that was kind of where it started it started with you know a lot of processing and then it kind of went into this how can i not do any of that so i spent a long time experimenting with processes and not basically compression and eq and learning how to get these sounds on the records i loved and then finding out it wasn't any of that ever and it was more the player and the the drum itself and the room so I started kind of figuring that out and then hiring specific session drummers for local stuff I needed based off of the type of music it was. And then all of a sudden you don't do as much processing and you don't mic it as much. So there was a lot of times I would only have a mono overhead and, you know, a kick and a snare mic and toms and maybe a, a hi-hat. And then hard panning the hi-hat for stereo and keeping the mono center for the snare and for the center of the drum set. And then I learned um, from Bill Schnee the Glenn Johns technique, which is funny because Massenberg says it's the Bill Schnee technique. So I don't know what came of that. I'm sure a lot of guys were doing very similar three-piece type mic builds where they would put three mics on a drum set you know, one on the mono overhead and one over on the side. I learned it as the Glenn Johns thing. And I, I think Schnee even calls it Glenn Johns for sure. And it's incredibly exciting because it's the one thing that a lot of people are like, well, what did you do? Your symbols are cool. And I remember being on a session w with Bill and watching the drummer really studying what it was. And he had these great, custom Sheffield microphones on the overheads that were like they I call them the pencil box mics they're very rare I only think John McBride has one which is shows you how rare they are um, Doug had six or seven Doug Sachs had quite a lot of them they were collecting them and I think Bill had a handful and at one time I, it was just like this plethora of them at Schnee's 
and he would use them on as many things as he could. And they were really impressive line level microphones. And then, so he would use these on overheads in a Glenn Johns technique. And just those two alone was just magic. And I started going, it has nothing to do with the process as much as I thought it was. And it's certainly not compression. It's the drummer and it's what you're using and how you're, you're doing it. And then I saw him use C12s and um, all different types of tube mics, which made me fall in love with tube mics on overheads. There's something about the way that transients hit a tube mic versus a solid state mic. I'm not a huge fan of 87s or any kind of um, pencil mic on overheads. They just don't ring right to me. And I don't know. So I, I tend to like to put like a C12 up or a 67 or some kind of tube-based microphone. If I had the... Um, if I had to use a different microphone, I've done it. And there's been a handful of mics that I actually like. One was an M160. And it was a stereo pair that I found that in a room that's tiny is probably the best sounding overhead stereo microphone I've had because it's really hyper directional and it's super smooth and it sounds great. But I don't really like it when you have a good big room. So going back to the Glenn Johns technique, you know, you can put a kick and snare mic on and that can just be a D12 and a 57. And you have this really great pair with a great preamp of overheads and you get your phase right. That's all you need. And I would put spot mics on toms, obviously, because I'm a big Tom guy. I fell in love with toms listening to Double Fantasy growing up. It was like the first album that I really started listening to toms and noticed that the toms were almost as loud as the vocals and going, now, I wonder, I think the guy's name was Lee DiCarlo, who engineered Double Fantasy, and he did a, quite a lot of stuff for Record Plant in L.A. And I don't know if it was his sound or what, but it was different than a lot of records I liked growing up. I was a big fan of Huey Lewis and those drum sounds, which were Clear Mountain mixes on a lot of them just felt like really great drum sounds with a lot of processing. The double fantasy drums were interesting because the toms would be almost as loud as the vocal and making it louder than the snare and kick. It's creating an element of excitement when they come in. And that was why I started, you know, trying to keep it minimal until you needed the spots on the toms. And that's where um, some of the expanding tricks I learned from CRC came in handy because I'm not a huge fan of gating at all, but I also don't like them open because I do process toms very aggressively versus any other drum in the entire kit for that reason. So expanding it seems to really work out nice while it does a ducking thing when it's not being hit. And just overall, it's just all about, you know, phase. I can't stress that. That's the one thing I still, almost 99% of the times when I get stuff to mix, I'll sit and I'll look at the stuff. I won't hand move anything, but I'll make sure stuff is going out versus in. And I know a lot of guys like to make sure when you're 
tracking drums, you'll use a clicker or some kind of phasing thing where you always know you're going out. Your speakers are always going out. Because a lot of people don't realize, even if your speakers are in phase together, they still are going in first or out first. And if, by God, your speakers are going in first, they still sound like they're in phase. They're just going in, which means you're losing a ton of impact, a ton of punch, a ton of low end. And you don't know it unless you had some kind of checker to know that your speakers are pushing out first. And I know that there's tricks you can do with, you know, I think JJP likes to put a quarter on like an NS10 and put it on its side. So anytime a kick drum hits, the quarter pops. There's other ways you can do it without buying an actual clicker that's going to tell you with an LED if it's in or out. And um, it's just the most important thing over anything is just always creating a perfect phase relationship between every element. Because once you do that, you can use less and less mics and less and less processing. And that's drums in a nutshell. I mean, I could go on and on about styles and what you would use, but a lot of it goes into what type of music is it? If this is like a Zeppelin-y rock track, of course there's going to be room mics. I might process the drums identical than anything else for a close set, but my two outriggers will be very low. They will definitely be tubes, either 47s or M50s or something in that realm where they are sitting very low and creating a lot of low mid information because the lower the rooms you put in, the, the, the less symbols you get. And as you know, even in small rooms, if you get a lot of low end information, it does really interesting things to compressors. And for the room mics, you'll find very quickly that you know you could pulverize stuff and just tuck it in and then there's your sound and you still have your clean mics so i don't like to use a lot of mics i see guys putting tom mics on the top and the bottom and snare mics on the top and the bottom and ride cymbal microphones and two sets of overheads and two kicks you know i've done a lot of two kicks thing i like it and um, or a U47 fat on the outside. It just has a sound. It really does. And I like D12s on inside. I, I don't like modern sounding kick drum mics. They're too colored. They sound like basketballs being played in a gym. And um, I'm not a huge fan of putting a lot of compression on kicks and snares anymore. I used to do it. I used to listen to... Um, you know, like the wallflowers and the snare was just the pinnacle of perfection. And I'm like, it's all achieved off of the compressor and how you use it and how you EQ the snare. And then I started realizing it had nothing to do with that. And Bill Schnee and Doug Sachs used to make jokes about, you know, oh, that sounds like a drummer hitting a compressor or that sounds like a, a drummer hitting an EQ. And there was a lot of merit to that because you started realizing all these guys are depending on equipment versus, you know, using the magic of players and the touch of human feel and all these things. 
It's cool. Now, I'm not against it. Don't get me wrong. I'm still looking for the perfect snare compressor. I can list you my last favorite four out of the box and my last favorite four in the box. And I still can't find the one I really like because it doesn't always work. But I stopped probably in like 2008 super hyper leaning on outboard compression for kick and snare. And it's opened up my sound and enjoying things. You were talking about interviewing Eric Valentine and I was listening to some of his records a couple weeks ago, just randomly. And I'm like, this is timeless sounding drums. This is stupid good stuff. And this stuff was done in the nineties during the min, like the moment of everyone using any kind of processing was the sound. And it just was powerful and engaging. And I try to always achieve the biggest I can get with that. So obviously compression is great and distortion is amazing, but you have to be careful with it and you have to choose it wisely. So with the Glyn Johns, how are you normally panning the overheads? Hard. You know, you put you put your your top center guy above the snare, you know, four feet or three feet. It's always by eye, so it's usually like two, three feet above the, the cymbals, but usually right by where the kick knee is. That's kind of where I center it. Um, it's not nearly – some guys like to center it over the snare. Uh, mine's kind of over the knee, so just maybe like four inches to the right of the snare. Um, and then the other one is, yeah, right by the floor tom, and they're, they're panned hard left and right. And, you know, sometimes it doesn't work. I used to actually do experiments. There was some really cool albums done. John Bryan produced an album for the soundtrack. I think it was Magnolia soundtrack. And there were some instrumental tunes in that record that it wasn't the Amy Mann songs. I think it was just instrumental kind of underscore stuff. And there was a, it was very beatly. And they, they had these drum tones and I'm like, how did they get those drum tones? And I was kind of talking to people and then I started hearing people talk about underheads. And I don't know if that's what they did, but it sounded like that. So you would use a pair of omnis under, between the kick, basically, a stereo pair. Basically where you would be, it'd be like one foot off the ground facing an omni. The, the feet, basically, while you're straddling this drum set. And that created this like really brashy, almost like I am the walrus kind of drum sound. I don't know how to explain it. It's very underheadsy. It almost sounds like the underhead snare, but the whole kit sounds like that. And I would do that for a long time, almost like two years, because I thought it was so unique and different. I wanted to create that as part of my sound. But I would notice that the kick was always leaning one side or the other. And going back to the Glenn Johns thing is when you're doing a drum set, you got to make sure your centers are correct. So you're, if you're going to have kick and snare in your centers, you need to make sure they're in the center. Today, no one's accepting, well, you know, the preamp was a little light on that one. They Perfection is so critical that you got to get away from that but you do need to watch it and with glenn johns you got to be careful that you're not getting the snare or the kick drum 
And it's usually in frequency response, leaning. It's not necessarily a balance. It's more like, well, there's more girth out of this snare from the overhead, which is hard left, than there is hard right. So you have to just even try to just move it and always just experiment. Yeah. Yeah, with the Beatles stuff, a lot of the from a lot of the photos of the the micing up the drum kits, there's a lot of stuff that you kind of kind of similar to the underheads that you never really see much today, like an under snare mic and an under tom mic, but no over tom or over snare mic. And I always wonder kind of why people haven't why that hasn't been repeated much. I don't know. I don't know if it was a taste thing i mean if you listen to ken scott versus jeff emmerich they were pals and i think jeff emmerich taught you know was a protege for ken when they just started out they were like companions and buddies and stuff but i think you know they all learned from norm norman um storm and norman who was like the original engineer for all the beatles stuff but he didn't take any risks it was jeff emmerich that took all these like really interesting approaches that you weren't supposed to do. Um, I'm super glad I was able to be a part of this thing about a year and a half ago. Um, we had a little party at Sony and my friend Eric's studio and it was like only like six or seven people or eight people. It was like John McBride and me and Joe Zook and, um, Manny Sanchez. And it was with just, there was a handful of people, some guys from the Sony stage were there hanging out and we were just hanging out talking to Jeff Emmerich. It was just this hangout that he wanted to talk and he wanted to, you know, go through all these questions that, you know, he gets asked, but really have him real answer it. It was unbelievable night. In fact, John McBride and I both can say that that night was like bizarrely magical because we were getting information that we already knew but in a different angle, like you're hearing it directly from the source. It was super exciting. So there was a lot of questions about that. Like, why would you do this? Is I've read this over 20, 30 years of reading one way. Is that true? And most of the time he's like, I have no idea who even wrote that. That's not true. Which was hilarious because you go, great. Okay. So tell us what, 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 what was the reasoning behind that or something like that? And he just shared all this knowledge about like he was being given the keys to the universe. And he was basically, it was very dangerous because EMI at the time wasn't allowed to do all these specific things. You couldn't take a kick drum mic and put it all the way, ram it in the kick. You could not ever put a U49 or anything up to a symbol ever without getting written permission from the board to do it. And even then they'll say no, but he just started doing it. And I guess obviously you can't say no to the guy that's manning the ship to the biggest band in the world still after 50 years. So he would take these approaches of going, I want to take the stuff I'm hearing on American records, which is usually stuff from like stacks and Motown, but I want to, try other things and I want to figure out how to do that. So I think that's what started with them, you know, putting mics on the underheads of toms and underheads of snares and switching out overheads from coals to the AKG D25s, which were essentially like what 57s are now. And it's interesting because if you listen to a lot of Beatles stuff. Like if you listen to, um, 
and I love her. And you hear the acoustic guitar in that. That's John Lennon playing a 160. And it's most likely going through U48. And it's super interesting sounding, super fat. And then you listen to same studio, four or five years later, you listen to Hey Jude. Same acoustic guitar, same player, D25. And it sounds super different. It's way more aggressive. It's brighter. It's thinner. It's kind of telephony, but it sounds like the Beatles. And that was the thing I think going through all the Beatles songs growing up. It always sounded like the Beatles, even when it didn't. I mean, you listen to Jeff Lynn's production of, of uh, Freeze a Bird and Real Love. And he does the Jeff Lynn snare sound, and that's Jeff. Or that's Jeff Emmerich engineering at Paul's studio with Ringo playing. But it's very different. But it still sounds like the Beatles. So I think a lot of it is that. I mean, when you get to do stuff that you're not normally allowed to do, your mind kind of goes into a different place. I think John Lennon said something when was asked, "Where do you think your genius came from?" And he he was laughing because he didn't know how to respond, I think. But then he said, well, no one told us no. Which is the key because then things come in different areas of your brain. Because if you're in this confident level, so think about that. So think about when you're working with amazing band and amazing studio and options to have whatever. And then no one's saying no. And they had the budget. Let's try stuff, which is what happened and which is what created all these new sounds, which is super cool. Um, the underhead thing, I don't know. I hear Ken Scott stuff and I still hear a lot of underhead sound. I think that's become his sound. I heard it a lot on the Bowie records. I heard it a lot on Elton John records, um, the Super Tramp record he did, uh, the Faces record. It has this snare. He has this snare sound. He's very known for that. And I think it's incredibly interesting to hear that but you hear it on like the white album and then you kind of hear it a little bit but then you don't on abbey road and abbey road i believe was jeff emmerich and phil mcdonald or whatever his last name was i think those were the guys doing that record which was traditionally back to jeff emmerich but but i think that was the first album that they utilize stereo for drums. So I think that's when they got crazy and started saying, let's pan the toms when we can. Yeah. I think it was also the only album that they used. It was the first album they used a solid state desk on. And the, I think none of the microphones really like reacted how they usually yeah. did. The TG desk was brought in, I think, for that. Yeah. Which is interesting because there's a lot of talk about that George Harrison and Ringo talk about the power was gone. And I think Jeff Emmerich was talking about, you could really hear it in brass. Like when you're recording, uh, you know, a brass section that without the tubes or whatever, if it was the actual telephone and preamps on the red desk um, versus the TG preamps, there was specifically a huge difference. And that obviously changes the mood of albums too, which gets us back to technique and what kind of microphones you would choose to use and anything to that era. Because I think Jeff Emmerich ended up using Coles forever after it, even though there's times when he would go back and forth. And 
um, all the way up to, it was funny. I was just listening to Paul McCartney album, give my regards to broad street. And I thought it's a really, you know, mid eighties kind of cheesy reflective album. And it's a George Martin compositional album with Paul songs and a lot of Beatles songs. And there's a lot of redos and Jeff Emmerich's engineering it. And there's an element of dateness because of the reverb choices, but I'm sitting here going, what is it? Because I'm so tuned to specific reverbs on drums, you know, music club C on 480 is one, the 251 is one. Um, some of the AMS obviously has always been really pointy and obvious for many big records in the eighties. But then you hear stuff you don't recognize and you're like, what is that? So there's uniqueness even with dating. And it could be just like anything where they didn't have the right reverb. They were hearing one reverb or they heard what people were doing and they only had the EMT digital rack reverb, which was like the 252, I think, that only did one kind of style. Who knows? And it became way more unique. So I, I try to like talk to people of creating their own sounds. Like I like mixing in the box and I like to not do it because there's two angles of freedom. You get a lot of uniqueness. So even if you are going to do stuff internally, try to find your own samples, try to get away from being in the same universe that everyone's in, which is why I try to do a little bit different when it comes to um, stuff, but it, it I'm pretty generic and definitely conservative when it comes to using specifics. I just don't think I'm very good at recording drums in the way that a lot of people are very good at. You know, I listen to, I'm a big fan of nineties records and the rock records that were happening then and stuff like that. There's a lot of power to the drums and I don't know if my ears just won't let me compress that way. I don't know if it's the fact that it's mostly tape-based albums and obviously they're, you know, being processed a, a little bit differently. But it's really hard for me to get that sound. If you are um, kind of trying to be more subtle with compression these days, are you relying more on then sort of bus compression or compression on the two bus at the end? or Kind of. I mean, it's funny. I do a lot of trailer music and that stuff lately in the last few years, I've been doing a lot of that because it's exciting and very challenging. Um, it's funny cause you'd hear it and you think you're going to compress the absolute shit out of stuff. But in reality, I don't even compress. I don't think very much at all. I send my stuff through like a tube tech multiband compressor with the threshold turned off. It adds an element of depth without compression, but if I take out the whole box, it loses a little bit of sparkle. It's just depending on what you're doing. I do like bus compression. I have one, two, three, four, five, six. Six stereo in my room, six really good stereo compressors, and um, one, two, three, four of them are tube, and they're probably all pretty pricey and they all do something a tiny bit different and i feel bad but i don't really use three of them very much anymore i should but they 
don't really get they get turned on but that's about that's about it i i've been sticking with two different ones um we just bought a dangerous compressor i heard it last week and fell in love with that and that's i think a vca based and that was one of the first solid state compressors that i didn't think was so aggressive that i couldn't use it on a two bus um so that's coming in that's really exciting but depending on like the the material i don't I don't really use anything as a crutch. So if you look at any of my sessions, um, I'm if I'm going to compress something for real, I, I'm not in no shame. I'm doing it on purpose. Like I will lean in on purpose. I'm not, I'm not a phobia kind of guy where I'm like, I'm not touching that. I don't compress that. That's going to ruin it. But I do know that even just putting inserts on plugins definitely change things. And I don't like that. And sometimes it's not even worth it. So I would rather augment with other elements than to add phase coloration or any kind of problems. And I think I just I hyper-focus and I hear things a little too aggressively in my head that I chicken out. I'm, I have a template where I have like six stereo buses that are only assigned for a parallel. And I don't touch them because I get so freaked out. Still don't think we're there. I don't know... I would like to have a conversation with Michael Brower about that. He's the only one I can think of that if he says it's clean and good for his system, I think we're finally there in Pro Tools. I think Avid hasn't reached that place yet. I still believe that even knocking one thing into a bus, you're throwing something out 20 milliseconds, and it's not compensating even when it says it does. And the reason why you go with it is because you're mixing into it. So you're making decisions based off of the problem. Um, that drives me crazy. I, I don't trust it. I mean, I could do inserts on my SSL bus. I have the Sigma where I can do analog inserts. But at the same time, I, I get really weird at, you know, using a lot of outboard gear because I do a lot of recall because I'm working on a lot of different things, three, four projects a day. In and out, I like to jump around. So the stuff I do use as hardware pretty much gets used on a template. So I'm either one or the other, which we can get into in a little bit. When you're working with the music for trailers and things like that, is using hardware kind of big no-no because of the recall factor? Or No, I don't think so. I think it's more, you know, I was talking to Robert Bennett, who owns Glory Oath and Blood, which is a really large trailer house. And we were going over a mix, a new album that I've been mixing. And I used to do a lot of mixing in the box with trailer stuff because you could get the depth that you needed, but the punch and the the sharpness of the transients. Because in trailer music, it's all about the hits. So you're thinking like the most insanity of orchestral meets metal meets EDM all in one song. And it's building. And some hits have like 10 hertz I mean, stuff that's so low, but if you cut out anything, you're losing impact. So you have to understand this like this struggle. And I noticed when I'm using outboard gear, specifically, a lot of hits really show up at 30 hertz for real, where you're actually starting to hear it. And a lot of good sounding compressors, tube compressors that are just beautiful on music, don't really like stuff at that level. Even if you're not compressing very much, it's just, it gets a little squeezed and stuff like that. So I stayed in the box for a long time. I felt like you'd get a better escape. 
you get a little sharper image um, and your hits were more punchy because it was sharper. And I did this last one on the Sigma. I sit in front of a Neve Genesis console and I use a Sigma summing on different things depending on what the day is. But in my template, it's always laid out as I have a digital bus, I have an analog bus. I can toggle between the two at any moment. They're identically cloned on the returns. So my entire fold down of the buses, which is every instrument, goes to the summing or it goes to the digital bus. So I literally have an in-the-box mix all the time and an analog mix all the time. And they're both printing. And I can go between the, an external and go and toggle between the two. And this last record I used, the SSL, specifically because I wanted to see what it was doing and Robert really liked it because it was adding, he was okay with the, for this project specifically, he was okay with it softening the transients. But what he liked was that it was adding uh, a lot of thickness to the, to the bottom of some of these instruments. So it was adding a lot of low, low mids, not necessarily sub information, but just low mids, thickening things up. So in reality, it, it depends where it could go. Um, I still don't like to do a lot of compression with trailer stuff just cause I'm going to see how this dangerous box works. It's going to be kind of interesting to see because I played with it and it's really fast and s s snappy, but it doesn't sound like a VCA based, you know, like a SSL or a 160 or a 33609, any kind of super fast fat kind of bass compressor solid state compressor doesn't really have that it's kind of hi-fi so it might be just the ticket um but i won't know until i try it does your two bus change much when you're working with trailer music compared to kind of on an album oh yeah so i like traditional i literally went from i mean i don't do trailer stuff i don't even do it half the time i've just been doing it more um, but it's quite a lot, you know, a few times a month I'll mix trailer stuff and my template stays about the same. The only thing that changes is I definitely do not use a tape saturator on a plugin on my two bus, no matter what, because it just can't handle the level and the, it just sounds like crap. It starts clamping down and I just don't get that kind of information. And to that note, any other type of music always does get it. Not every time, but 90% I have the ATR, the UA, the ATR on there. And it's just set pretty minimal. And it really just, it changes it a little bit to the point where I actually like to use the repo EQ, top high frequency EQ, um, as an EQ. Because it's like, if I need air, I'll just turn that up like a half dB. And it really does something versus touching an EQ. It's cool. But my two bus pretty much stays kind of the same depending on the material. I have a Tegler audio um, compressor that's via controlled. It's like a really great analog box, but it's also via control of the plug-in. And that is super special because it does this sparkly thing that the TubeTech multiband doesn't do. So depending on the music, I did this jazz album, kind of fusion jazz thing for this guy. Um in San Francisco and it totally needed the Tegler because of the way that it just adds this format sound. I didn't know how to explain it to people other than 
it sounds like you're taking it and putting it on a different medium. Reminded me of like when you'd print stuff to DSD or something. It was just didn't sound the same. Something sounded very different. The color was not colored as much as it was just the what was coming out of speakers sounded different. So that was pretty cool. That was definitely cool. The tube deck is interesting because when you think you're coloring too much and then you compare it with a different compressor and it's not even on the same stratosphere, it's a very interesting sound. And I learned it from, I think Bill Schnee has one and Ed Cherney has one and Al Schmidt has one and all, everyone has this box and, um, a lot of people are scared of multiband, of course, on the two bus because it could be very dangerous. There's a lot of knobs that could be bumped and stuff, but I've had it for a while and it's always worked on everything and it always creates this liveliness on the two bus. So it, it definitely goes on it. But a lot of my sound is also going through the Josh Florian JCF converter that I have that is really magical because that's what sets it above a little bit in my opinion because you got to go out and come back in and i've had the burl converters i've owned uh the bomber i've tracked on the mothership stuff a lot it's okay i mean i liked it a lot when i was using it because it was different i think that's the dangerous thing you have to be careful with is hearing stuff as a freshman and then knowing by the time you're a junior, you're still okay with it. You can't like something because it's different and then commit. You have to be careful because just because it's different doesn't mean it's better. And that's what I noticed with specific pieces of gear. You use it and you're like, that's way different. Oh, I love it so much better because, I don't know, it's rounding off the top end and it's adding a bump at the bottom end. But then, you know, you start having conversations with people you respect and you're, you're learning that, you know, all these guys are focusing on translation versus color for the, for the end game. And so I'm going, okay, you know, I don't need all these color front end things. It's really cool what it does, does something really well, but I don't need that on, certainly not on a print. And I would rather have something that is not necessarily a piece of wire I don't like it when people are like, it's a piece of wire. This thing's just so transparent. It's just a straight wire. I want something that it was really hard for me to, to understand what I was looking for in my head until I started working for Bill Schnee and attending Doug Sack sessions and learning Bill and Doug's philosophy about listening and how things reacted. And that you found out that color is like subjective that super large transparent stuff isn't cold, doesn't have, have to always be cold and boring, that large and transparent and like mirror image stuff is actually color in its own right because it's different. And I was always, that was my philosophy. I needed to always keep searching. I can use as much compression as I want, but I need to make sure this is the biggest sounding thing coming out of these speakers. So up till the point where I was doing quite a lot of shootouts with other engineers and stuff, I would have all their mixes in front of me if I could, and I would just try to challenge it to be bigger because that's what you're wanting. Because bigger doesn't always mean louder, and it definitely doesn't mean anything 
other than bigger. So like you could have the same volume and it would be way louder. That, that makes sense. It's not about like, it could be quieter in, in format, but it can appear louder because it's less compressed and it's, you know, things are breathing much bigger. So it's not as aggressive. I think Greg Kelby said something like he has the hardest time because he's at the same time trying to balance aggressive high end and making it bright at the same time. This wasn't referred to anything I gave him. This was something he was talking about in an interview I was reading where he, that's most of the time he's fighting that. He, he's like, and it's a joke because it's like, how do you do that? How do you get a mix that's so bright, but at the same time needs a lot of top end? And how do you get around that? So that's what specific pieces of gear does. You could literally insert stuff that's super clean and clean in a positive way, like Josh's converters have, I don't think has any electronics on the input stage at all. It has two Cinemag transformers, I believe, and that's it, doing um, what it does. And that alone creates the size effect, in my opinion, because you're not ramming it through a bunch of little things. But coming back to that, there's something to be said. I started on an SSL, an E and those are very well known for being very colored and not small, but just definitely colored. And, you know, I remember when I first started hanging around Schnee, he would talk about how in his console it had less electronics than an entire channel strip does on like a VR or an SSL. And I go, okay. So there's something to that. That's creating all this size effect. But like I said, going back to it, I have a Sigma here that I've shot against a ton of summing mixers, including very high fidelity tube summing mixers. And the SSL was able to create a very, very pleasing warmth and thickness that didn't used to do that in, in, a, in a transparent, larger sizing way. So it's just been really interesting to say i'm not here to bash any company but it's interesting to see these transitions between um, eras of how things get and change but at the same time you get other pieces of equipment that are known for being really clean and sometimes it just is just what it is it's just sterile and it doesn't work and it's fatiguing and you got to be careful with that and i guess steve albini is a great example of that it's kind of thing where He's known for being the tape guy, but actually he uses basically the cleanest possible recording kind of path possible. Yeah, he still makes huge sounding records. Yeah, kind of kind of interesting effect there. You know, it's it's Greg Norman, his his head chief at Electrical, built me eight preamps called the Normaphones. And they are the best sounding my preamps I've ever had in my life. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. And I regret not having, I, I had them made for the MCI console that we had years ago before it was sold. And so when we sold the console, it was going with it. And I really wish I kept those pre's and I racked them because they were so unique. Um, I, you know, I've had 1073, vintage 1073s, um, everything I'm looking at these tab V78s. I have four of those in my rack. I have Fern Prees in my rack right now. Eight channels of Tone Lux, 32 channels of Neve Genesis 1073s. 
lots of good choices, but you know, those Norma phones were freaks. And I think the electrical audio preamps that they put out with the two EQs are those. I think Greg said those are the same, which are, they're king. They're gorgeous sounding. Um, so you mentioned before taking part in mix shootouts. I kind of heard you say that you had certain kind of ways to stand out amongst other mixes doing that. Could you maybe go through some of those? Yeah. Those are fun. I mean, I really enjoy the competition of that because it really stretches you into a different path. And for a long time, I really liked to do it in the box. I still do, but I wanted to achieve it and win if I could win with the tools that everyone has, reverbs, uh, plugins, other than my speakers and my, my knowledge, I wanted to be able to be competitive that was my challenge for a while at a level where I could always do it. And I wanted to learn that. So it took me a few years to really get under the in the box approach and understand how it works. And I, I'm still completely clueless about it, but I think I've gotten a little better. But the one thing I do is if I am up against somebody and I have their mix, which I always try to find out if they've gone to other people and they're looking for new guys or they have three guys that they're looking for and I'm included in that three guy thing and they're going to make a decision. I always ask if, is it possible I can do it at the end? Um, a lot of people don't want to hear what other people do. I love listening, not because I like to take ideas from what they're doing, but because I want to hear what they're doing with the same sounds. And usually that means relatively there it's it's pretty even it's never super aggressive it used to be kind of weird because you get some guys that were totally unique in the sense of their taste and their personalities so you get that here and there where like you get one mix in there that just sounds not like even the same song let alone the same band but most of the time you're, you're basically dealing with you know pretty good sounding mixes all across the board so how do you stand out from that without being super radical or annoying? Um, the first thing a lot of guys like to do that don't have a ton of experience is start sampling the drums differently and changing it because they want to make it different. I think it just goes into the same era of how do I make this bigger? How can I make this bigger sounding or better? which it sounds like you were asking about. I said something once about a, a thing that I was up against a girl, um, Katie Love Hess, who's an artist in Canada. And the, the producer had three mixers. I won't say the other two guys' names, but I knew who they were. It was really exciting because that was one of the first um, larger projects that had uh, names that I was very familiar with on it. And... I came in at the end because the producer knew me from Chicago from years ago. And um, they said something like, this is clearly something you would really be good at. Um, would you like to take a stab at one song? I said, yeah. They sent me the song. And it was really cool. It was very Bonnie Ray, very groovy. Um, I can't remember his name. He just died a couple years ago. Prince's drummer played on it. And it was so grooving. That was like one of those albums where you just put the faders up and it's like, holy crap, this is an album. It was really exciting because the players are phenomenal. Singer was great. 
And I got the other two mixes for the other guys that were doing it. And I had them up in my, this is when I didn't really have a template, but I was able to have them up where I had them on externals. So I could through my external listening, I could check in real time. They were all level matched just to see what was going on. And, um, it was interesting. The one guy had tape delay on her vocal and very groovy. And then the other guy had kind of like a Motown drum set, very mono locked. Um, there was like a plate reverb on the vocal and it was just like really groovy sounding and they both sound really good. And I'm like, there's no way I'm, I can't do this. And I'm trying to figure out ways to change the personality of the track without, um, being too radical and annoying. So I just did what I did, but the biggest thing was I noticed, and this is something I brought up quite a lot in the last few years, is on the bass guitar, when you get two tracks, one amp, one DI, you really need to sit there and decide if being out of phase from each other is good or bad for the song. And someone that is like myself that is obsessed with super low end and tries to push the envelope almost to a fault. I always feel like I'm just about ready to fall off of a, um, a cliff or something because I'm adding just too much. A lot of people are like, that's you though. You can't change that. Don't, don't stop doing that. Like my problems are three things. Vocals are always a little too in your face. The snare is always too loud and the bass is just enormous. And I, don't like that because I don't hear it on a lot of records, but I always do it and I don't know why I do it. But I said, these, these all sound really good mixes. What can I do to make it different? And I remember putting the bass out of phase from the DI, the amp and the bass octave dropped. It was clearly out of phase, but the octave dropped way lower and it added so much separation to the middle of the track, the low mids and stuff that the snare started grooving differently and all these changes started happening. And I'm like, well, duh, but I mean, you can't put the bass out of phase because you can't do that. And then I started going, well, why not? Of course you can. So I started adding more finger noise, which is like right around 900 Hertz. So you got a little bit of the neck in there and then you got all this like sub information. And, um, I turned it in and it was like 45 minutes later, the manager of the artist and the producer is like, you got the record. And I'm like, what? I mean, I couldn't even understand. I got it, but I understood it was different, but it was off of, they said, what did you do to the bass guitar? No one had been able to do whatever we heard in the studio, which probably meant there was a sub in the studio. And when you're tracking and stuff, you're, you get just this plethora of a low end in the room and you start kind of taming things for an album. You kind of are a little more cautious and you kind of tuck it down. So the vocals and stuff get there and it was all luck. But at the same time, it was like, well, yeah, that felt great. And then I found out a lot of people do that. And that was, I was like, Oh, okay, that's good. Because that is just one element you can do to separate yourself. Even if it feels different. You know, and that, it doesn't really work for drums as much. Sometimes with kicks, sometimes with snare, if you pop a snare out, it might set the drum set back just perfect enough where it's not abrasive, where you don't have to put a compressor on it then. And reality wise, it's not 
in phase, but I don't think that matters anymore. There's so much problems with the way that boxes are made that are playing music now, Bluetooth boxes and sound bars and Bose speakers and Apple Beats ears and all these cool technology. It's just, I think there's so much phase problems going on in those boxes as is that I don't think it's going to matter if it, if you feel like it sounds great. I'm talking about when I'm talking about phase is that things are all going one direction for a reason, unless you're making a critical artistic decision against that. Going back to kind of recording different instruments, maybe if we move on to electric guitar, do you have any kind of go-tos for that? I'm pretty light on guitar. Unless it's acoustic, electric is just, it's mainly what the player plays, and I put a 57 up. I haven't gotten too radical on that. I'm known for being kind of a a bore when it comes to electro. Unless I put like a room mic up or something, it's usually just a 57. Well, um, acoustic then. You got any other kind of go-to techniques, mics? For acoustic? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it could be anything through large diaphragms, but, you know, I was telling somebody the other day that's like, I think, Elliot Schneider's favorite mic, one of them is a 451 or an SM81 on acoustic. And there is some truth to that. Like 47s and C12s are beautiful acoustic, but when you need to put something in a really dense track, you don't want to do that because you're going to end up cutting everything out. And I'm not a huge ribbon mic fan on that because of that main reason, unless it's like a solo instrument. Um, Just pencil mics sound great. Uh, you know, KM56s are awesome. They have like a really nice, tight, punchy, but harmonically rich tone because they're old Neumanns. But that's another thing where it's like you just use kind of a slower compressor, very light, and it just, if the player's great, you really luck out. Do you have any kind of standard, standard placements like 12th fret or? Yeah, just that. <laughs> I mean, it's super generic. I'm pretty pretty generic when it comes to that stuff it's more yeah it's it's in monitoring you're, you're kind of hearing what you're doing if i have to cut some eq out it's how you place it in the track um if there's a vocalist singing with the guitar and playing at the same time you got to check your phase um but it's pretty pretty traditional you normally just recording acoustic and mono then uh yeah Unless it's like a solo thing where it's, you know, flamingo or playing some kind of solo that's strictly no accompaniment. It's pretty stagnant. You keep it, you know, wide as much as you can. It'd be pretty boring, but I try to keep it mono. And if I have to double it, I'll do that. So um, moving probably lastly onto vocals, you said it's one of your kind of main things is having upfront vocals. Do you have kind of standard mics then and compressors to go to for that sure um that always varies uh big tube condenser fan again a very big u47 fan um i had a long body telefunken for a couple years a real one and i heard the flea 47 up against it and it made me not want to keep that mic and put the money into my savings account. So I sold it and we bought a flea and I've been very happy with everything flea makes is freak like, 
Um, now that we purchased three M50s through them, I have a pair of C12s through them, a couple of 47s, um, maybe a 49 coming up. I just tried out one of their 49s. It's just really, I don't know, I'm a big fan of old German mics, uh, real ones for sure if we can, um, but there's nothing wrong with the flea stuff. They're phenomenal. Um, luckily, working under some guys that actually had unbelievable amount of um, microphones collection, you could hear what they were really doing and what they really are supposed to sound like. So when I started going off on my own and working at the larger studios that had these mics, you'll know real quickly if they're healthy or not. Just because it's a 67 doesn't mean you want to use it. And I started finding that working out of a lot of LA studios, you go real quickly and you say, give me an M49, a U47, U67. So they set them up and then you listen to them and you're just going to instinctively think they're good because they're $45,000 in microphone stand right there. Having the knowledge that you know what it's supposed to sound like, you can really quickly go, forget it. I don't want it. I don't, that's broken. I don't, that there's something wrong with that too. I, I would rather use something that is healthy. And, um, I kind of stick to that philosophy. Uh, I really, really do like two microphones on vocals. I don't mind dynamics. You know, Ken Kelly is a, is a barbaric man when it comes to that. We used to have these raging fights and I'm saying it as sarcasm, but we would literally be up and he would be fighting for an RE20 while I was fighting for a 47 because he likes the way the dynamic is, but he also really likes the idea that it's $300 and it's, it still sounds just as good. And it really took me into a new universe. I used to enjoy the SM7. Obviously a lot of people like that, Mike, but there is something to know that like, just give a really good dynamic on a vocal mic. If you have a great preamp and a good compressor, you're king. You're, you are totally set. And in fact, that's actually more unique than anything that's coming out lately because everyone is using these kind of lower grade Chinese based microphones that just don't sound very good. Um, and I'm not sure about the mic modeling thing yet. I've haven't put my nose on it. I'm not going to say anything really about it if it's good or not. Um, it's pretty cool how it reacts and it's very impressive compared to what it was when I was like 20. And I remember there was an Antares plugin called mic modeler and that was the biggest hiccup I think they ever did because it didn't really do much. And so these modeling things are super impressive for what they're doing. I don't know how much if I had the real thing sitting next to it, if I would just take the modeler. Um, but in general, it's like you want to be creative and you want to be unique. You should go after that and find stuff that's different. Yeah. Do you have any kind of favorite uh, compressors for that kind of upfront sound? Distressor. I mean, that's, I you know, there's a handful that, you know, Shadow Hills has the optograph that I have, which is the big, it's the, it's the same. It's almost the same size as the mastering compressor. It's just the version without the VCI cell. Um, and that's pretty good. It's a little softer sounding. Um, I have a thermonic culture Phoenix that sounds good on vocals, but the distressor it's super protective. So it's, it's kind of colorful, but not at the same time where it's able to create a size element which when you have color from a microphone and a good pre, you don't necessarily need. 
the color from the, the compressor. So the distressor has been like really surprisingly accurate constantly on when I listen back to records I've done and go, that's a good sounding vocal because it's just something that's just easy to do. Now mixing, I might go and put a LA-2A on or um, a plugin, like a tube tech plugin or some kind of plugin that's, you know, the Klanghelm has amazing um, JUC for vocals, even if you're just half dB of touch. It's just a nice, creamy, slow sound. But going in, the distressor really does clamp it, but without pulverizing it. you got to be careful because you can pulverize without looking at it and not knowing it until you see the waveform go, what happened? But it's pretty good, pretty good. Do you have any favorite uh, kind of standard ratios that you use on the distressor? Oh, God, I don't know. Four? Six at the most. I'm not a big high ratio fella. I feel like it starts pulverizing my ears the higher I go up. Unless I'm coloring like a group of instruments, like a drum set, where I can just have the room mic at 20, you know, and then tuck it underneath, which is fine. Yeah. Are you using any of the kind of um, distortion harmonic coloration on it much for vocals? You know, I don't know it enough. And I've had it for... I've had a distressor in my possession for 14 years and I started listening to it for the very first time in 2001. Uh, my mentor had too, and we listened to them and I don't know it enough to understand what it's doing. I should probably really look at that and try to figure out what it's doing, but I just kind of click it until it's working. Um, in fact, I was using the high pass thing without knowing what it was doing. And then I would go, Oh, no wonder it was cleaning up the vocal because it was cutting some of the bottom out. So these things, like I'm not like a guy that reads manuals. I'm kind of a fella that needs to play with stuff for a very long time to understand what it does and make mistakes with it to really get it. Uh, that's kind of where I shine when I can actually, it's basically knowing what the box is doing from trial and error. And error is usually way more than the trial. Yeah. So... I think that's all my questions. Uh, thank you so much for talking with me. Great. Absolutely.